Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, may every word out of my mouth and every word that rings into our ears and that sinks into our hearts in this hour, may every word remind us that you and you alone are the Savior and the Lord that we need. Do a good work in our lives now. In Jesus' name, amen. Mike just went out, huh? All right. Like I said, I'm just going to walk up and down this aisle. So if you guys on the end can't hear, please feel free to move in here. It's not going to bug me if you get up and move. Uh, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. The significant thing about 1 Peter 1, verse 13, is that it's the very first command in 1 Peter. You'll see the first word of our verse is, therefore. And this means that following the first 12 verses, the very first time that he's going to tell us what to do, he tells us that in verse 13, when he says, therefore, and the command is not a command that you would expect. In fact, to me, it's a surprising command. Let's say that you were getting coached on how to run. You would expect your coach to command you, do this with your feet, do this with your hands, whatever. But what if the first command your coach gave you was something about your neck or your breathing? I wouldn't expect that. Or if we were getting a lesson on how to make the best chili to win the chili cook-off, I would expect the first command to be about the meat, the spices, the simmering. But what if the first command was like about what kind of pot you would use or what kind of spoon you would use? Wouldn't expect that. The command that we find in 1 Peter chapter 1 is an unexpected command because it is a command about hope, about hope. And we don't think about hope nearly enough. 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. God's word says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." The very first command oh, is a command to hope. Don't worry, it'll go out again. <laughs> Satan roars about like a roaring lion to silence all of us. So if you see in the bulletin, I just want to take verse 13 almost word by word by word. First word, therefore. Therefore. We have spent 12 verses on the blessings that God has given us. Therefore, there's a response to those blessings. If you let your eye float through verses 1, 2, and on down through verse 12, look at it. Verse 1, it says, since God has chosen you and given you a living hope. Verse 3 reads, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
verse 4 says, since God has given you an inheritance that is incorruptible and that will never fade away. Then look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, God has blessed you by guarding you by his power for your salvation. Then verses 6 and 7 maybe surprisingly say God blesses you with trials and troubles because God values your faith and he wants to strengthen you. Verse eight says you have the blessing of swimming with the strokes of loving Christ. And even though you haven't seen him, you love him. Verses 10 through 12 describe the blessings that all of the prophets told of salvation that would be yours in Christ Jesus. And then after these 12 verses, after 12 verses where Peter celebrates the sovereign action of God for us, finally he gets to the dependent action that we take for God. 12 verses of God's omnipotent, sovereign action that he takes in our salvation. He elected us. He gave us an inheritance. He preserves us. He foreordained us. The predictive work of the prophets, all of that. And then finally we get this command, Therefore, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, I want you to see the sequence because if you don't see that sequence, you will miss the good news. The gospel is a command to believe in Jesus, but the gospel is good news that there is no, there is no command that you could follow to get God to love you. The gospel is the declaration that God has loved you by providing everything you need in Jesus. Therefore, all that you do for God is the bounce back and the echo and the response of what he has done for you. The message of the New Testament, the message of 1 Peter, get this, get this, is that God's moral commands no longer crush us because Christ has fulfilled them for us, and now Christ's spirit fulfills them in us. God's moral commands would crush us if all we had was our own effort. But the therefore in 13 comes after 12 verses of describing what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the, the failure that you failed to keep all those commands. And because Jesus rose from the grave, this demonstrates that the price has been paid. And because Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that he would send his very spirit in you to help you keep the law of God from the heart. This is why the moral commandments of scripture no longer crush us. We actually can fulfill them. Not merely us, but Christ in us. That's all behind the therefore. If that's the therefore, look at the second phrase. Hitch up the hips of your mind. The ESV says in verse 13, preparing your minds for action. The old King James Version says, gird up the loins of your mind. Or a paraphrase would be, hitch up the hips of your mind. Peter loves illustrations and images. And the image here is of a, of a, a first century man wearing a, a toga or a robe. Don't think robe like the kind you got for Christmas that's real snuggly. Think like toga. 
And what would happen, of course, you could imagine it. How could he run around if that, if that toga and, the, and was just billowing around everywhere? Or better yet, imagine, uh, imagine that that guy wearing that toga is working on a construction site. And he's up on a scaffold or he's up on a roof. And there are nails everywhere and there are hazards everywhere. So with that, with that thing flowing around everywhere, it's going to snag on something. He's going to trip. He's going to fall off the roof. So he would hitch up the robe into his belt so that it wouldn't catch on anything. And that's what Peter means when he says, hitch up the hips of your mind. The part of you, like that robe, that could get snagged on a corner of the roof and make you fall, the part of you, hear this? The part of you that can snag and cause your fall is your mind. Your mind. I think sometimes we oversell or, or misunderstand as if the flesh, the sexual urges, whatever, is, is the biggest danger. That's a big danger. But the Bible says that it all comes back to the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind. Girding up the loins of your mind. In modern lingo, we would say, roll up your sleeves and get to work. Or in even more contemporary modern language, we would say this, hey, put down your phone and pay attention. That guy just put down his phone. I wasn't actually talking to you. I wasn't actually talking to you, brother. Like, but how, I mean, how many times have I been like, I've been like, mm-hmm, Amy, Amy's talking to me. And I'm just like, mm-hmm, 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 And she's like, so then she says, and you're going to kill yourself right now, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, you're not really paying attention because you're looking at your phone. Peter says, pay attention, pay attention. Peter is exhorting us to pay attention to what we pay attention to. Don't let your attention go without paying attention to what you pay attention to. Peter is exhorting us to think, and specifically, Peter is exhorting us to think about what we think about. In other words, you need to attune your mental attention to this all-important question. What has my mental attention been attuned to? Think about it. He's going to talk about our behavior. The very next verses, he says, be holy, don't be conformed to the bad way of living, but live the right way. And then he says, God's going to evaluate all your behavior. So he's talking about what you do. But notice, first comes what you think. Christians don't merely do what they do. Christians do what they do because they believe what they believe. Christians do what they do because they think what they think. Your behavior should actually be about what you believe. What do you believe? The people that Peter's writing to had a choice. The world said, if you let go of Jesus and follow us, we'll stop beating you up and everything will go better. And they had a choice to believe. What the world offered was worth it. Or they could believe, if I am beat up and even killed for following Jesus, that's way more worth it because what the world offers me is a lie. Which one is it? Which one do you believe? You see, Christians don't just react. Christians act out of conviction. Out of conviction. This is what Peter's getting at. You'll deny Jesus to fit in with the world 
if you think that what the world offers you is actually life. But if you think about what Jesus said, the one who loses his life will save it, and the one who turns his back on me to keep his life will lose everything. If you think about that and that settles in, you will never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is it? Which is it? You see, your reaction comes out of the, the thinking of the heart. That's why the verse begins with, therefore, and that's why the first thing he says is, hitch up the hips of your mind and prepare your minds for action. The third phrase, very similarly, you see the ESV translates it, being sober-minded. So the contrast between sobriety and drunkenness. The, the contrast between being aware and not being aware. There's, a, there's sort of a bad Hollywood paradigm that, that drunkenness is, is being happy and that sobriety is, is sour and dour. And that's not the case. Biblically, biblically, drunkenness is the refuge of hopeless people. You hear me? Drunkenness is the refuge of hopeless people. Sober-mindedness in Christ is the glad response of joyful hope-filled people. Peter likes this contrast between drunkenness and sobriety. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And he uses it again in chapter 5, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The first strategy for not being absorbed into this age is to be sober-minded about what you think about. It's almost like he's saying, because you are a sojourner and an alien and you're going through suffering... You have to be sober-minded about the communication with your, with your true homeland, with your true king, when the Caesars and the presidents and the senators of this world try to threaten you. Pay attention to what matters most, he says. It is easy to lose focus. I suppose the analogy breaks down because... I don't know, you, 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 you'd have to make an effort to get drunk and just guzzle and guzzle and guzzle and guzzle. But in this world, the inebriation that comes from worldliness, you don't have to do anything to get it. You just have to float. You just have to drift. You just have to watch whatever the next thing that your online streaming service recommends right? And they automatically start it. You don't even have to search it out. It just starts playing. It's the easiest thing in the world. It's so easy to lose focus. It's so easy to drift. Staying alert takes effort. It is so easy to be distracted and subsequently devoured by the diabolical roaring lion. Staying sober takes work and vigilance. To be sober-minded means to be self-controlled, it means to avoid any mental or spiritual intoxication that would confuse you about who you are and what matters most. It means being clear-minded. 
So if you look at verse 13, he's going to get to this point where he says, fix your hope fully on Jesus. What happens when your hope is fixed on Jesus? You become a person who sees reality clearly. You're no longer drunk by the fogginess of this world and you reorder your priorities accordingly. Don't let your mind drink in things that numb your heart to Jesus. What is that for you? I can't answer what it is for you. I could probably make a good guess because I know a lot of you. But maybe you need to spend a little time thinking about this in, in, your, in your time with the Lord. What are the inputs um, that make heaven less real and Jesus less precious to me? And how can I knock those out? What are the inputs that encourage me to sink all of my roots in this world? And how can I avoid them? That's what it means to be sober-minded, to be sober-minded. So church, I exhort you to stop and consider the inebriating influence of the world. Like I said, worldliness is the air that we breathe. You don't even have to seek it out. The inebriating influence of this world and this age. There's something about the present age that makes heaven seem uh, ethereal and far away and earth seem concrete and like it's all that matters. But beloved, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. You need to sober up from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness. So you can see how this thought about hitching up the hips of your mind and being sober-minded helps us roll into the next point of verse 13, which he says, once you're sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope in Christ has a sobering effect on our lives. Our hope in Christ has an energizing effect on our lives. And our hope in Christ has a clarifying effect on our lives. Our hope in Christ has a decluttering effect on our lives. And so let's talk for a while here about hope. Peter makes much of hope. Peter makes much of hope. Did you ever think about how each of the New Testament apostles maybe has a little bit of a different emphasis? It's not unlike each of our ABF leaders having a different emphasis. I mean, they're all in the same text today. It's Genesis 27. So Wayne's going to cover that. Phil's going to cover that. Jim's going to cover that. Fred's going to cover that. Every, you know, it's, it's going to be covered in all the ABFs. But each individual will kind of emphasize something different based on their autobiography and their point of view. Well, each of the writers of the New Testament, same way. It's a broad brush stroke. It's not totally accurate, but I think it's helpful to summarize it like this. John, the apostle John, is the apostle of love. Paul. Paul, the apostle, is the apostle of faith. And Peter is the apostle of hope. He writes about hope throughout his two epistles. Let's talk about hope. First, defining hope, a definition of hope. Christian hope is a spirit-given virtue which enables us to joyfully expect the things that God has promised. Christian hope 
is a spirit-given virtue, a spirit-given ability, which enables us to joyfully expect the things that God has promised. Hope believes God. Hope expects God to be good to his word. So Christian hope is not mere speculation. Christian hope is not mere wishing. Christian hope is an expectation. Christian hope is a spirit-given virtue enabling us to joyfully expect God to do the things that he has promised. Because Christian hope is, is grounded in the things that God has promised in Christ Jesus. Christian hope is an expectation because Christ doesn't fail. And Christ provides what we need. Another definition of hope from another theology book. It says, the hope of faith is grounded in this truth. Yahweh knows, promises, and brings to pass all the future he holds for his people. Biblical hope is grounded in this truth. Yahweh knows, promises, and brings to pass all the future he holds for his people. So despite all the evidence to the contrary, we know this, God will be true, though every man be a liar. Despite all the evidence that runs against it, Sarah's too old to have a baby. Despite all the evidence that runs against it, the Romans and the Jews finally killed Jesus and his cold carcass is in the grave. Despite all the evidence that runs against it, we know this, Yahweh God never fails to keep his promises. And this is where our hope is grounded. Defining hope. Second, developing hope in God. Developing hope in God. Talk about hope and talk about God. Put it like this. Um, the, the, the command is this, set your hope fully on the grace. Here's the exact wrong way to do it. I would be, I would be uh, basically abusing this passage of scripture. If I talked to you this morning for the whatever 40 minutes that I have your attention and I told you um, uh, to work on your hope and work on your hope and work on your hope and work on your hope, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. We cannot first improve our ability to hope and then reach out to God. Oh, church, it works the other way. It works the other way. The one thing you have to do is see Jesus Christ and then hope flows from him into you. Don't work on your hope and then hitch it to Jesus. You'll never get there. But if you believe Jesus, if you encounter Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you worship Jesus, if you repent to Jesus, then hope becomes your heart's response to who Jesus is, what he has promised, how he died for you, how he rose again for you, how he's going to come for you, how he's right now guarding you. That's the way it works. And so the, the, the most important thing you can do is get your eyes on God. A small God births small, weak, anemic hope. A small, stunted God breeds small, easily extinguished hope. But the great God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great God of these 66 inerrant, inspired, sufficient books of his revelation to us, the great God himself begets great hope that all of the setbacks and all of the persecutions and all of the death threats of the world cannot vanquish. Developing hope in God. Here's a, a couple of scriptures about setting your gaze on God. Psalm 33, verse 22. 33, 22. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Psalm 62, verse 5. 62, 5. For God alone, my soul, wait in silence, for all my hope is from him. Psalm 71, 14, 71, 14. I will hope in you continually and I will praise you yet more and more. Psalm 146, verse five. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. So church, you can't focus your hope, fix your hope, strengthen your hope, and then finally get around to understanding God. It works the other way. It works the other way. Third thing to say about hope, defining hope, developing hope. Third thing to say about hope is this, depending on what God has said. Hope is always busy depending on what God has said. Hope is always busy depending on what God has said, which is to say that Christian hope is biblically based. Christian hope is biblically grounded. Christian hope always has a verse, and it doesn't just have a, a verse. It has that verse understood in its actual meaning in God's progressive revelation. And I want to talk about that for a minute. Biblical hope is based on the Bible. And I put it like this. Biblical hope is based on the Bible. Biblical hope is not based on your feelings about the Bible. Biblical hope is not based on your intuitions about the Bible. And biblical hope is not to be based on your wishes about what the Bible would do. Biblical hope is based on the Bible as God has revealed it, as the Holy Spirit and the human authors intended in what they wrote. Biblical hope is based upon the Bible. Romans 15, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15, verse 4, describes hope as the purpose of the biblical revelation of the Old Testament. And then it comes up repeatedly in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 49, remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. 119, 49, and then 119, 114. 119, 114, you are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. So I'm just belaboring the point, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you a story why, which is, which is uh, based on a true story. Changed a little of the details. But biblical hope is based on the knowledge of Scripture, not on an emotion. In other words, if your hope was based on what you feel, then how would you have hope when troubles and trials make you feel lousy. I, I don't want to be, and maybe sometimes in the past I have been, the kind of pastor that makes you feel bad for feeling bad when bad things happen. And I don't want to do that. When trials and troubles happen, they feel lousy. And it's okay to feel bad about them and feel lousy about them. That's the way it is. The Bible doesn't say that all things are good. The Bible says that bad things are bad. 
Bible says that God causes all things to ultimately work together for good, but that doesn't mean all things feel good. So hope can't be based on your feelings. Otherwise, how would you have hope when you feel bad? Feelings are what they are. Trials do trouble us and they do hurt. But biblical hope is based on the knowledge of God and his word, not on our wishes or our feelings about what the Bible means. What I mean is you shouldn't place your hope on what God has whispered to you in your heart or some providential sign of something that somebody said or did. You should ground your hope specifically on what the promises of God's word mean, rightly interpreted. And the story that illustrates this is a woman I knew who had something terrible and hard happen to her. Her brother was dying of cancer. She was unmarried, real close to her brother. Her brother was dying of cancer. So she reached out to God and she found Matthew 18, verse 19. If two or three agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them. And claiming Matthew 18, 19, she gathered two or three friends, prayed for her brother's healing, and her brother wasn't healed. He died. And now she's mad at God, and she doubts God and distrusts what God has said. But can you see that her error was that, well, maybe she grabbed a verse, but that's not what that promise is. You just have to look at a couple of verses before and a couple of verses after. That, that, that's not Jesus promising that every time someone you love is in trouble, if you pray to him, it's all gonna get fixed. That's not what that verse means. Even if you get two or three people to agree with you, it's still not always gonna happen that way. And that's clear. That's clear in the immediate context. It's clear in Matthew's gospel. It's clear in the New Testament. It's, it's, it, that, that's clearly not the meaning of that text. So can you see that her error was, her hope was based on her feelings about the Bible, but not really based on the Bible. You gotta cling to what the promises are. I, I think of uh, what he just said in verses 10 through 12, that the prophets themselves searched carefully about what the meaning of their prophecies was. So I do want you to ground all your hope in the Bible, but I want you to do so clearly and uh, uh, reverently and, and, so to speak, intelligently about what it really means. And then as we've talked through each phrase, there's only one more phrase left, and that phrase is the best one. And it's this. Set your hope fully on the grace that'll be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about fully and I want to talk about grace. And I want the mic to keep working while I do. So first, that word fully. Set your hope fully, fully on the grace. This is, so setting your hope is amplified by the adverb fully, totally, right? All in, no chips held back. Do not diversify your portfolio. What do I know about investing and portfolios? Answer, almost nothing. <laughs> but I, I understand that diversifying your portfolio means you don't put all of your stuff in one stock. You diversify it so if one goes down, you still have something left. Uh, the other way to say it would be don't hedge your bets. 
what do I know about sports gambling? Next to nothing, because I never do it. I think it's a bad idea. I just know that there's way too much of it. But I understand that hedging your bets is like once you make your main bet, then you make a couple side bets that will like soften the blow if your main bet doesn't work out. So that's the opposite of fully, you see? Set your hope fully on the grace that'll be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think of all the times, all the times that you and I have prayed together, Lord, would you save this prodigal child? Lord, would you heal this precious woman from cancer? Lord, would you work this situation out? And, and, and we lift that up to him. And we want that. But beloved, there is only one outcome upon which we set our hope fully. And that outcome is this. Jesus Christ is returning. Jesus Christ is returning. And we have set our hope fully on that. Fully on that. Set your hope fully. And then I saved the absolute best phrase for last. It says, set your hope fully on the grace. The grace. This point is just, this is, this is just the coolest, most awesome thing about preaching from the New Testament. These verses are a command that you should quit doing the junky stuff you've been doing and start cleaning up your act. You should quit thinking about the things you've been thinking about and change the way you think. This verse is all about command. But this verse is all about what? Grace. Grace. So you don't become a person who keeps these commands because you're lobbying to get God to love you. That's not the way it works. You fix your hope completely on the grace and you want to obey and you want to make it to the end. But even if you blow it like Peter did, there is more grace in Christ than there is blowing it in you. There is more grace in Christ than there is failure and sin and feckless cowardice in you. There is more grace in Christ because though our sin abounds, and it does, grace abounds all the more. In his baptism in the Jordan in our place, in his obedient life in our place, in his propitiation, his substitutionary death at Golgotha in our place, and in his resurrection in which we have spirit-wrought life now brought to us. If this is our Savior, what, what, what could we possibly do but set all of our hope fully upon him and his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see you high and lifted up. Lord Jesus, help us to be sober-minded about who we are, what this world is, and how you're coming back. And Lord Jesus, now, by your spirit in us, cause us to set our hope fully on your grace. Amen. Amen.
To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.